Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. This is all about trust now and personal responsibility and just being careful and not being selfish. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The idea of an irreversible move was taken off the table. You can't do that when you have no idea where the virus is going to go. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Stephen Carroll. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Boris Johnson is urging further military support and more missiles for Ukraine as it continues to battle Russian forces. The Prime Minister has been speaking to Bloomberg this morning. That interview next. Also on the programme, we're taking a journey into British infrastructure. After the Elizabeth Line opened in London this week, what are the next big projects that rail users can look forward to? We'll hear from Richard Burge from the London Chamber of Commerce, plus Matthew Niblett joins us from the Independent Transport Commission. But first, Boris Johnson is trying to move the government on from the damning report into Downing Street lockdown parties earlier this week to address the cost of living crisis at home and on the international front to bolster efforts to support Ukraine in the face of Russian aggression. Now, Bloomberg's UK government editor Kitty Donaldson has been with the Prime Minister this morning as he discussed the need for more offensive weapons for Ukraine and how to deal with the crocodile that is Vladimir Putin. I think it's very, very important that we do not get into, we do not get lulled because of the incredible heroism of the Ukrainians yeah. in, uh, in pushing the Russians back from the gates of Kiev. Yeah. Uh, because of their, their amazing valour of, of President Zelensky, we should not believe that this problem has gone away. On the contrary, mm. I'm afraid that uh, Putin, at great cost to himself and to, uh, to, to Russian military, is continuing to chew through ground uh, in Donbass. He's continuing to make uh, gradual, uh, slow, but I'm afraid palpable progress. And therefore, it is absolutely vital uh, that we continue to support the Ukrainians yeah. uh, militarily. And, and indeed, I think that they, what they need now is the uh, type of uh, rocketry, um, uh, a multiple launch rocket system, MLRS, yes. um, that uh, will enable them to uh, defend themselves against this very brutal Russian artillery. Okay. And that's where the world needs to, needs to go now. Okay. Final question, and this is about President Zelensky. You've, yes. You've stood shoulder to shoulder with him, but there's certain calls around Europe, perhaps from France, from Germany, to maybe settle with Putin, try and... Try and uh... But I would say to any, I, I, to any such uh, you know, proponent of, of a deal with Putin, how can you deal? Yeah. How can you deal with a crocodile uh, when it's in the middle of eating your left leg? Uh, you know, what's the, what's the negotiation? Uh, and, and that is what Putin is doing. And any kind of, he will try to freeze the conflict. He will try and call for a ceasefire while he remains in possession of, uh, of substantial parts of, of and Ukraine. And you say that to Emmanuel Macron? And, and I, I make that point to all my friends and, uh, and colleagues in the, in the G7 and at NATO. And by the way, everybody gets that. Once, once you go through the logic, 
you can see that it's very, very difficult you must to, get a, to, to get a negotiated solution. We desperately need, need it to end. Uh, we de- the world needs it to end. Yeah. But the, 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 the one way that it can end is for Putin to accept that, uh, uh, let us say that the denazification of Ukraine yeah. has taken place. Oh, I see. Uh, and that he's able to withdraw with dignity and honor. And that would be... And what, what's that, your, that, what's, that's what needs to happen. I, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying that there were any Nazis in Ukraine. No. Uh, but, you know, I think one of the interesting things about the situation is the very strong support that Putin commands in Russia for, what he, uh, for anything that he says or does. Yeah. Uh, I think he has the political margin of manoeuvre uh, to make an end to this. So that was Boris Johnson. So speaking to Bloomberg's Kitty Donaldson about uh, what to do on Ukraine and the aggression from Russia. Of course, he was on a train journey actually this morning. He was heading up uh, north to Darlington. This after the government has announced billions of pounds in extra aid targeted at the poorest households here in the UK. Johnson also did mention that the UK can dodge a recession in the months ahead. So we're going to bring you much more from that uh, interview with the Prime Minister throughout the day on Bloomberg Radio and Television. Okay, well, let's turn from news on a train to news about trains. This week finally saw London's Elizabeth Line open to passengers. The East-West Rail Link has been years in the making and comes the price tag of almost £19 billion. It includes 10 new stations and will bring another 1.5 million people within a 45-minute commute of the capital's major commercial centres. We're joined now by Richard Burgess, Chief Executive of the London Chamber of Commerce and Industry. Richard, thank you very much for joining us on the programme. Uh, The line is open have the economic benefits arrived already or are we still waiting? Uh, no, I think we're going we're gonna to see them gradually accumulate, although I'm looking forward to getting on it as soon as this call is over because uh, I've got to head to Paddington. So I'm really looking forward to getting there in about 15 minutes. What did we learn from the building of this project given all of the delays and cost overruns that there were? Well, I think let's look at the the positive thing. First of all, this project was 70% 70 funded by a levy on London businesses. Uh, It was uh, largely debated at the time it was put in place, but I think it's been successful uh, and a successful way of funding it, particularly when you have an infrastructural project that is going to to benefit business life. So I think that was a good move, and I think it has worked very well. In terms of the cost overrun, I think there is a one particular reason for that. In this country, we tend to design an infrastructure project, go to politicians and say, this is how much it's going to cost. And then they say, ooh, don't quite like the sound of that. Can you bring it down a bit? So then somebody comes up with a a figure that the politicians will accept. And lo and behold, you can't build it for that amount. So my feeling is we need a bit of honesty on the funding of, of infrastructure projects. We need to design them properly at the outset, come up with the real cost of doing it. And then politicians have to decide, are they going to pay the real cost or are they not? And if they're not, it's better not to start it. So okay. I think that's that, 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 so that's the clear, clear lesson. Um, you know, you get what you pay for, I suppose. Um, Richard, uh, yeah, 30, it was 35 years. So really, if you count kind of from initial inception of the Elizabeth line, i.e. Crossrail 1, um, if you think now about the next big project, can the case actually be made for Crossrail 2? Because Crossrail 2 um, has kind of fallen victim in some ways to the pandemic. Sort of discussions and, and work on thinking and planning for it has been put on hold. 
Yes, and I think you're right. That's exactly what happened to Crossrail 1. There were changes in government. Government wanted to call it in. They wanted to have another look at it. It's constant political interference in these infrastructure projects, which is what puts the time span on it. If we look at a major project like the Apollo space mission in America, that didn't happen. Basically, uh, the NASA was told by Kennedy, we're going to put men on the moon in 10 years. How much is it going to cost? Is it technologically possible? Uh, that they gave him a bill. They told him how much it cost. And then the politicians stayed out of it until Apollo 11 finally landed. Absolutely the right thing. Done on time, within budget. The problem is if you have politicians constantly second-guessing complex engineering problems, you will get significant and massive delays. So is the argument, the okay, you can't make an economic argument necessarily for the Apollo mission, but can you make, is it the economic argument that wins in that discussion if the price tag is very intimidating for a major infrastructure project? Can you and others advocate on an economic basis for the benefits it will bring? We have to. And if we can't advocate, then we shouldn't build, uh, we can't make a successful case for it. We shouldn't, shouldn't. Uh, proceed with the project. But once a decision has been made that the economic case has been proven, then we should just crack on with it and not constantly, constantly revisit. The world does change. I mean, obviously, when Crossrail, when Crossrail was actually, the timing for its opening was being developed uh, six months ago, nobody knew that Ukraine was going to happen. Nobody knew that we were heading for a decade of not having Russia as part of the international economic system. So, of course, things change, but there does come a time where you have to say, we've made the decision, we're now going to crack on with that decision. Uh, Come what may, we've got the plan, we've got the funding in place, let's get the thing done. Okay, so what must you think then of of HS2? Because that's, um, you know, the the kind of idea around levelling up of connecting, yes, the northern cities amongst themselves in part, but also connecting the north into London, into the capital. I think HS2 is hugely important. And if all HS2 is, it's a fast line to Birmingham, let's not bother. The whole thing was conceived as a way of going through Birmingham, creating connectivity through the northwest up into to Glasgow and through the northeast up into uh, York, uh, Newcastle and then beyond to Edinburgh and also to have the Northern Powerhouse Rail Link. That, those are all essential. If you're only going to do bits and pieces because at some moment in time it looks like it's politically convenient to cut costs but still give the illusion that a project's going to ha- go ahead, that is just muddled thinking and that is a waste of money. So my view is HS2 needs to go ahead in its in its full extent. At the moment, if you're a scientist working on really great work in Manchester and you want to work with your colleagues in London on the Euston Road, which is where the trains come into, it's still easier for people on the Euston Road and the Crick Institute uh, to, to get to their colleagues in Paris than it is to get to colleagues in Manchester. So we've just got, that's what we've got to change. Um, and we've got the plan. It's in place. We know how much it's going to cost, providing it's not a fiddled cost to make it all look politically acceptable. We now need to get on with it. But we need, we also need to guarantee that the North has ways of communicating amongst themselves and not just simply with London. So that's why the powerhouse link is also important. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's continue our conversation about the future of transport here in the UK after the opening of London's Elizabeth Line. We're joined now by Bloomberg's EMEA Transport and Aviation Editor, Chris Jasper. Chris, great to have you on. Now, we had the new aviation policy statement this week, which aims to boost the airline and airport sector. Give us just the details about what the plan is there. Yeah, this is a 10-point plan uh, unveiled this week by the government. It's a long-awaited uh, initiative to uh, try and boost aviation in the wake of the coronavirus. It was actually announced uh, or flagged in, in 2020, and it's taken a, a couple of years to come to fruition. It's very much broad-brush stuff, but I think the key aim is to repair rather damaged relations with airlines and airports. There's a feeling that uh, they didn't get anything approaching the degree of state support that a lot of rival uh, hubs and, and carriers did in, in the rest of Europe. Um, and at the same time, travel restrictions imposed by the UK government were, were rather draconian and, as we know, changed almost on a weekly basis. So they felt rather cut adrift. So part of this is... Uh, this this new strategy talks about bolstering the UK sector. Britain did have the third largest uh, aviation sector in the world uh, before the uh, COVID hit. And, and obviously, uh, Heathrow Airport and British Airways were at the centre of that. Um, so there's an effort to bolster that sector. But at the same time, they say it must be done sustainably. Um, they talk about adding airport capacity where justifiable. And squaring that circle is going to be very difficult. The, the UK's mm -hmm. got, um, you know, very uh, advanced commitments to uh, net, achieving net zero. It, it's got uh, sort of signposts towards that that are more stringent than in many other mm -hmm. countries. 
so what we need to understand is how can the, the sector grow, uh, regain its preeminent position in Europe um, while uh, decarbonisation is the, the overarching policy. And was there, you know, we're, we're looking at the kind of future of transport in, in the UK. Did we learn anything from that policy about the capacity for airports? Well, uh, it, it, it mentioned uh, extra runway capacity where justifiable, and that's the, the big question. Uh, Heathrow is still keen to build its third runway. It said at the height of the pandemic that that wouldn't be needed now for a good few years. Uh, but it's in recent months sought to put that back on the agenda. Um, there was a problem at, at governmental level. The government had given the go-ahead for it, uh, but then had been found to be in breach of some of its own environmental policies in doing so. That's now been resolved, uh, but nevertheless, it, it's as hot a potato as it's ever been. Um, there is a feeling that Britain's going to need a, a new runway somewhere. So that's going nice. to be either at Heathrow, Gatwick or Stansted. Um, so whichever airport is going to get that over the next 10 years or so, and, and one of them seems that it, it must do, that's going to be a tough one for any politician to sell. Yeah. And all of this, of course, when there's still COVID disruption, right? The airports are still really struggling with staff post-COVID. Yeah, that, it, that's a huge issue. I mean, they're, they're gearing up again this weekend for the UK schools are on, on holiday next week. We've got the four-day uh, platinum jubilee celebrate, uh, celebration from next Thursday. So this is one of the big getaways of the year this weekend, the biggest since Easter, if not bigger. Uh, and we're already seeing really significant disruption. We had EasyJet suffering an IT outage uh, yesterday that took out a couple of hundred flights, mainly at Gatwick. We've had huge queues at Manchester Airport again. Uh, we're seeing problems on the continent too. KLM has actually stopped selling tickets from Amsterdam Schiphol Airport until Sunday because there's such a, a backlog of flights cancelled. And almost all of this disruption, apart from the IT out, outages, relates to a lack of staff and uh, actually staff really on the security uh, uh, check. Um, mm. When you're going in uh, from uh, going airside, your bags are scanned, uh, mm. your shoes are checked and so on, those people there, they're the main... Uh, direct employees of an airport, security staff and cleaners. Yeah. Everyone else you see is really employed by other companies. And there's yeah. a huge shortage of those at pretty much every UK hub. Uh, and also some airlines are saying they're struggling to recruit. Uh, British Airways hasn't really got enough people in um, positions that what they call uh, okay. um, below the uh, b- below cabin. I mean, Right. Yeah, so the challenge is facing that sector as well. Uh, Chris Jasper, our uh, EMEA Transport and Aviation Editor, thank you very much for joining us. Interesting to get the picture of the future for air transport there as well. Yeah, so let's turn our attention now to Matthew Niblett of the Independent Transport Commission. The ITC is a charity which focuses on improving policy on transport, on land use and also on planning. Matthew, good to have you on on the programme. So we're sort of thinking about the Elizabeth line, about other modes of transport, the future of transportation in the UK. You must have a view on the Elizabeth line. Are you pleased it's finally over? Is there relief or or do you think there are big lessons to be learned? Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's a huge uh, relief and, uh, and a real milestone to see the Elizabeth Line opened after, as we know, uh, a considerable delay over the predicted 
tired. It's a, it's a big achievement as well for for British construction um, to see uh, to see the line in in operation. So there's there's much to celebrate um, to see that finally working. What did we learn from from the building of this crossrail project that might help to inform the next big infrastructure projects in the UK? Well, indeed, there are there are many important lessons from this for major infrastructure project building. I mean, I think uh, several of those have been have been noted already by the by the government when they they are trying to um, use those to uh, improve the way in which high speed two is being built. But a key aspect is that it's not just about the engineering, uh, the engineering in terms of creating the the tunnels and the and the tracks was was on time. The problem was that the systems aspects were not integrated or planned um, uh, as well as they uh, they could have been and that's what's really held the whole project up so uh, certainly okay. a key lesson is to integrate systems uh, into the planning at an early stage uh, but also i think um, there was an issue uh, with crossrail in terms of of the fragmentation of the project into uh, smaller pieces and there needs to be i think um for uh, one of the key lessons is really to make sure that uh, the systems uh, themselves have a have a central uh, sort of point and then the procurement is less complex okay yeah so i mean simplifying these sort of or at least masterminding these huge projects but what do you think is the biggest transport priority now in in the uk is it hs2 that's coming next or as christopher jasper was mentioning that there's going to be the need for another uh, um, airport runway for example what what is the biggest kind of transport priority now I think uh, the, the major issue is in terms of how do we get uh, this infrastructure built and, and integrated in a way which uh, provides better service for um, for integrated transport, uh, but also that uh, helps to meet the various targets, environmental and sustainable targets that the government have met. And that's quite a difficult uh, issue to kind of reconcile um, at the moment. A key aspect, though, in terms of the infrastructure, I think, is that it infrastructure building doesn't just bring benefits in terms of activity, but it's also important in terms of boosting uh, skills, in terms of boosting So it, it's going to be important for ensuring that the uh, UK economy can grow efficiently for the pandemic as well. Matthew, the, it, I, I wonder what your view is in terms of the policy that we have announced versus the actual implementation and delivering of results, given that we've had to wait such a long time for the Elizabeth line to be built. Is that something that will put off the impetus for other major infrastructure projects? The crucial thing is to learn the lessons from the, uh, from the Crossrail Elizabeth line uh, and make sure that of the same problems don't happen again uh, with with high speed two and other major major projects. Uh, I'm encouraged that uh, the government has been looking at, at lessons from uh, the the issues with uh, with Crossrail, and uh, has talked about ensuring that high speed two um, those lessons are transferred over to improving the delivery of, of high speed two. But that, that that applies, of course, to any other major projects that are being developed as well. And there are certainly some some issues uh, there in terms of how can we get infrastructure built in a way which is more streamlined 
which takes less time because the problem, of course, with infrastructure is that you're building for a future that may be 10, 20 years away, which may not be the same as today. And is there the vision for that in government now? Do we see that there is actually a plan for the future? I think we'd like to see a more integrated and certainly more flesh on the bones. We've we've had some very grand statements, uh, some laudably ambitious statements, uh, but I, I think what we now need to see is more detail about how those are going to be actually achieved and, uh, and implemented. It's a very broad brush at the moment. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.